Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice in Mansfield Park are not only popular novels by English author Jane Austen, they've been reworked into films, TV shows, and continue to be reinvented by modern audiences two centuries after they were penned. But why? Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon, and on this Fordham Conversations, I'm talking with Dr. Susan Greenfield, professor of English at Fordham University, about the lasting appeal of Jane Austen. Good morning. Hi. Hi, Robin. Susan, give me a sense, uh, to start off, of what Jane Austen, the person, was like. You're a scholar, so what was she like? That's a pretty big question, huh? Yeah, and, um, you know, there are debates about that. When... Her brother and then her nephews were first writing her biography. They described her as kind of the perfect, genteel, well-behaved woman. Evidence suggests that wasn't necessarily so. There's a a kind of famous story that uh, her male relatives promulgated about how when she was writing in the parlor, if anybody came in, she would secretly hide her writing because it would be seen as unfeminine to do so. Devaney Lucer, in a recent op-ed in the New York Times, suggests that that's highly unlikely, that she was proud of her writing, her family was proud of her writing. And so this idea of kind of the reticent, prudish Jane Austen is really a myth, and a myth that needs to be dispelled. Any attention to her letters, most of which were burned tra- tragically, I mean, this is one of the great... <laughs> nightmares for Austen scholars. She wrote copious letters, and her sister Cassandra, after her death, burned the vast majority of them. Why? We would like to know. I mean, what kind of information was in there that uh, might have been revealing? You know, probably she did it to protect Austen, to protect her privacy. But the result has been that, you know, not as much is known about her as as scholars would like. So Nevertheless, the letters that remain and their wit and their fierceness and the novels, of course, suggest that she was, you know, abiding wit. Uh, whether she was so with her family or not, I'm not sure. Uh, some of the things she said to them, for instance, to a nephew, she famously said, what should I do with your strong, manly, spirited sketches full of variety and glow? How could I possibly join them onto the little bit, two inches wide, of ivory on which I work with so fine a brush as produces little effect after much labor? So a quotation like this on the surface. So it looks she's like, saying, I'm working harder than you. <laughs> yes, that would be one way. That would be one. Th- I like that interpretation. That's one way to kind of read between the lines, right? But on the surface, at least uh, by some, it was taken as kind of a sign of her deference to kind of male, strong, manly, spirited sketches versus these tiny, you know, representations of, of little life on little things. But I think your point is actually well taken, that she may be saying something else, like, I am working harder than you. And I'm also saying this with a contemporary, you know, like 2017, you know, point of reference, you know. Right, (laughs) right, right. You know, that, you know, this is what women have to do. But it could also be ironic. And maybe an irony that is over his head, right? right? Clearly, her work (laughs) has survived and endured and his hasn't, right? So one of the 
things to wonder about, and I don't know the answer to this, and I suspect there are people who do. So I would encourage you to recognize that this is not the last word by any means. But the question of of how vocal she was, how satiric she was, how witty Witty. she was, how willing to decimate people the way she does characters in her actual day-to-day life is, at least to me, unclear. Um, that she had that in her is is quite clear. And it suggests that she's not necessarily what her her brothers might have seen her. She might be a little bit more to her. Or than... the way they wanted to represent her. Right. They might have seen her that way. From You know, she was a very precocious child from a very young age. She was writing these send-ups of novels that are incredibly smart and satiric and witty and playing with conventions. Even as a child, she's not falling into the sentimental appeal of novels, but recognizing um, their cliches, recognizing the cliche of romance, for instance, and um, exploding it already. And, and most of her, most of her novels, at least on a, a rudimentary level, people think are clearly and only about romance. But that's not true. Well, you know, it depends on what people you are referring to. <laughs> um, scholars would not argue that. Say that that's only what they right. were about. I mean, it's more I think than that. that, you know, there's probably a long history to it. But for our moment, it's certainly been encouraged and produced by the Hollywood industry and the movie industry and the representation of her novels in film, which certainly feature the romance aspect and prioritize that. Um, and... Um, obviously have mass appeal, mass appeal especially to women, it seems, and um, have deeply affected the understanding of what her novels do in our culture, so much so that male readers are sometimes less willing to examine her works. I mean, one of the things I've found at Fordham over the years, and I've taught Jane Austen courses, I don't know, for the past 20 years regularly, is that Never do I have many male students. I mean... Why do you think that is? I think it's because they see as Jane Austen as being about romance, and they see it as chiclet. And they... And some people think, like, romance novels are just frivolous, or... Yeah, they're frivolous, no they're about women, they're not about the real world. What do they have to say about politics? What do they have to say about real power struggles? What do they have to say about Donald Trump, North Korea? You know, the things that matter. Uh, adventure suffering, war, right? What do they have to say about any of that? Um, And in your writings, you point out that she has a lot to say about those things. Yes, indeed. Mm -hmm. But just to kind of finish up the point about romance, one of the fascinating things about the novels, if you study them, is that the romance aspect of the novels is intensely solitary. So while the novels are kind of famous for, at least famous right now, for these kind of romantic swooning pairings, right, and the movie versions of them, in the novels themselves, the heroines are often alone with their romantic feelings or romantic questions, and in some cases even chained to thoughts. Um, In Sense and Sensibility, there's an incredible line where Eleanor Dashwood, the older sister, is thinking about Edward Ferrars, who has, in some sense, betrayed her, although she's not actually quite clear on that at the moment. And the line reads, her thoughts could not be chained elsewhere. One of the fascinating things to recognize about that is that 
that romantic experience is taking place in her mind. It's oppressive. It's obsessive. And what I would argue further, if you look at the novel carefully, is it's compensatory. Because the way that novel opens, um, Eleanor and her sisters and mothers are evicted from the house they've grown up in because their elder half-brother has inherited all the property. And they are rendered effectively homeless. And while they're not homeless in the sense that we might think of people as homeless today... Like they're not living on the streets. They're not living on the streets, and they're still in, in privileged positions in many ways. Their meaninglessness, their lack of power, their valuelessness, and their inability to really do much about it is palpable. So you see what, someone coming into your home and telling you you're dismissed. You can leave now. Basically, that's mm-hmm. what's ha- what happens. And they wait around for a while trying to find a place to stay. And then they finally, a cousin of theirs offers them a, a cottage, which is a big step down for them. And they go off to live there. But the novel turns turns from that to focus primarily on this kind of romantic obsession that both sisters develop, Eleanor with Edward Ferrars and Marianne, the younger sister, with um, Mr. Willoughby. And what then becomes kind of popularized in our culture are these incredible romantic drives and relationships, particularly Marianne's with Willoughby, the way it's played out on film, is really a way of kind of disguising or sidestepping the exploitation and inequality they have experienced originally. So what do they have left? They have romance to look forward to. They have the possibility of a happy marriage, possibility being the key operative word here, uh, because it's also not necessarily likely. And they have no agency in this. They must wait until they are sought by these men. Because we're not in a time period where a woman can go up and say, hey, I want to date with you. Right. Um, so they're actually remarkably powerless. And what they do in their time is they are chained to ideas about romance and to love and the possibility that that can free them in some level or give them a value and a means of survival in the context they're used to. Um And so what Austin does in that novel, for instance, is she introduces romance as the kind of preoccupation forced upon heroines who are treated unequally and have no power in the world. And though at the end, um, of course, she satisfies the romantic desires of her readers. I mean, and this is one of the classic things Austin does, is she, as we might put in the Academy, she troubles romance. She reveals its illusory, addictive, obsessive, pernicious effects on the minds of characters who don't have power. But these characters But then actually rewards the the characters with a romantic ending. But even in rewarding them with a romantic ending, Susan, while they're thinking about romance, it's not all, you know, bunnies and, and bubbles. Explain to me a little bit about the characters and the thought process that these women are going through when they're thinking about romance. It's not like, I'm going to marry him and everything's going to be perfect. There no. Are, so tell me a little bit about Often the it's process. torment. Yeah. I mean, for Eleanor, chained to her thoughts, it's torment. 
And for large portions of that book, the heroines are bereft because it becomes apparent, at least until the end, that they're not going to get these men and that they've suffered yet another loss, a loss of their home and now a loss of this ideal, a loss of this possibility. Um, there's a famous scene in Sense and Sensibility where both sisters are on the bed and Marianne, who, you know, is the drama queen, is crying about having been abandoned by the man she loved. Which turns out not to necessarily be the case. No, she is actually. Oh, she does. She doesn't get that man. She has to be satisfied with somebody else later. And Eleanor starts to cry almost as much. And there's a moment where I think it's Marianne almost screams in agony about this experience. And so, you know, the idea that the movies promulgate, you know, that that there's this romantic tension, that the relationship between the hero and the heroine, or I guess to put in the feminist perspective, the heroine and the hero is really the center of the story, is not, in fact, what's happening in the novels. What's happening in the novels is the heroine is thinking about a hero who often is unavailable to them in some way, whether literally or uh, romantically. I mean, some often the hero isn't even there. One of the things I like to to point out with my students about Pride and Prejudice is that Elizabeth Bennet spends actually remarkably little time with Darcy during the period when she is ostensibly falling in love with him. That he's actually not there. I once did a calculation, and I'm not sure I'm going to get it right, but it's kind of, I think I, I estimated that between the time she first rejects his marriage proposal, when she's quite sure she doesn't like him, and the time that she decides that you know no man would be better for her, She's been in his presence for maybe a total of three hours. Okay. (laughs) And and to me, the thing about Mr. Darcy, you know, uh, in in Pride and Prejudice, I saw him as sort of brooding, aloof. Um, Modern films, as we we talked a little bit about, have made him a little bit more sexy, a little more more appealing. A lot more sexy. A lot more like Colin Colin Firth. (laughs) He ends up wearing that that um, sort of wet T-shirt, you oh, know, yeah. as he and that's the scene that everybody's looking at when he takes a, a a swim in the lake and he comes out. But to me, I was turned off by Mister Darcy Good in the you. beginning um, because of how aloof he seemed and because of how. But by the end of the book, I was rooting for them to get together. What makes that transition? How okay. did she get us there? I mean, how does Jane write in a way that she gets us from this person who she she had to write in a way that he did not seem appealing to someone who we're like, girl, Rooting you got to be it. with him. Yeah, <laughs> um, There are a couple of things she does. But what I would stress again is that she does them almost exclusively, although not entirely, without the help of Mr. Darcy as a present character. So one of the things that happens... So are we making this up in our heads? No, we're not making it up in our heads. I'd like to think of it more as a kind of court case. Elizabeth Bennett kind of, without realizing it entirely, goes on a journey where she acquires various pieces of evidence that help her assemble an idea of Mr. Darcy that is actually quite lovable. But it's evidence in his absence. So first she sees, and this is a very famous moment in Pride and Prejudice, she sees his house at Pemberley, and it's amazing. And she thinks that to be mistress of Pemberley might be something. And people are forever quoting that line, Elizabeth Bennet is really materialistic. Elizabeth Bennet is actually falling in love with his wealth. But there's more to that than meets the eye, because what she's recognizing about Pemberley is how tasteful it is, how little it has imposed on the natural landscape. 
um, how much care and thought it reflects. And more profoundly, what happens in during her visit to Pemberley is that she uh, spends time with Darcy's housekeeper. In Austen's novels, lower-class characters rarely get to talk at any length. And so this housekeeper, Mrs. Reynolds, you know, she doesn't talk that much, but for an Austen novel, it's pretty extensive. And she goes on and on about what an amazing guy Darcy is and what an incredible landlord Darcy has been and what an incredible master. She says he's the best master landlord brother who has ever lived. And of course, it's hyperbolic and one wonders, you know, whether one should take it at face value. But Elizabeth, to some extent, really does. And so she gets this information from a character who could have really suffered under Darcy's power. And what the information reveals is that Darcy has exercised his power benevolently, kindly. It suggests something about how he might exercise his power over her one day. Um, it's like they are, that old quote, you know, if someone's nice to you, but they're not nice to the waiter, don't trust them. <laughs> absolutely not, right? Right, exactly. And she takes this information and she goes and she looks at his portrait. I just love this scene and I talk to my students about it ad nauseum. And when she's looking at his portrait, she's rehearsing in her mind all of the things that the housekeeper has said. And she starts to invest the portrait with the ideas the housekeeper has offered her. And by the end of the scene, it's absolutely remarkable. The portrait kind of comes to life and it starts to look back at her and to have a kind of power over her. For me, that's actually the moment when Elizabeth Bennet falls in love with Mr. Darcy. Mr. Darcy isn't there. She's falling in love with the ideas she's acquired by the housekeeper, projecting them onto a portrait, and then giving the portrait the power to look at her. And all of this is happening in her mind. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm talking with Fordham professor Dr. Jane Greenfield. We're discussing the lasting appeal of Jane Austen and the deeper themes of her widely romanticized and popular novels. Susan, if you took the romantic notions out of Jane Austen's writing about this character, how would you translate that into something of substance for uh, a woman in our century or our year. What's there to take away from this? I'm not sure it's necessarily the best recipe for deciding with whom to fall in love. For me, what I like to stress with my students is that it's an opportunity to consider the extent to which their romantic fantasies and ideals are being generated by their own mind. Mm. An opportunity to experience the kind of solitude of falling in love. I mean, one of the things I often say to students is when you're busy thinking about somebody you think you like or you love, do you even need them there? Is it good to have them there? How much are we being trained to actually imagine a kind of love that harnesses us to certain heterosexual expectations? This us is general because obviously it's not true for Everyone. lots mm -hmm. of people. But even for people who are not heterosexual, how much are we being encouraged to imagine a kind of romance that harnesses us to a certain way of acting sexually and romantically by a set of ideals that have permeated our minds? 
But she also in solitude. But she also got that she didn't automatically see him uh, in Pride and Prejudice and fall for him. She was doing something that I question how many people do in a romantic sense is I'm not just going to fall for him. I'm going to investigate. I'm going to take some time to get to know him through people who are around him Mm -hmm. before and not let them know that I'm coming and saying, hey, tell me about him. Is he a great guy I should date? Or is, is this a great girl I should date? Right. It's a long line. Oh, I'm just kind of wondering what you think of him. And when you hear all these great things, you're doing your detective work. You know, yeah. it seems like she was doing that, which is seems like a, be That's a good interesting. thing to do. <laughs> yeah. If you can rely on the source. Right. Um, right. You know, so is this housekeeper rely? I mean, one of the, the ironies of the novel is that everything the housekeeper says about Mr. Darcy is actually denied by Darcy at the end of the novel when he says I was a selfish child my whole life so but that could be him being modest yeah or him having a different perspective right but you asked also the other thing that the 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 kind of deeply romantic aspect of pride and prejudice is that austin represents darcy as changing as recognizing how he's abused his power and how he's abused his kind of sense of superiority and needing to be humbled um, and this is the great fantasy. Um, so in a, in, in another famous scene when Darcy first proposes to Elizabeth and he's really obnoxious. I mean, he says, he begins by saying, you must let me tell you how, how much I adore you, how much I love you. And you know, it's a wonderful passage and I'm still waiting for someone to talk to me like that. <laughs> Even though I love my husband, I love you, Matt. <laughs> but then he goes on to say, you know, but I didn't want to love you. I mean, you're beneath me in status and look at your family. They're so crass and embarrassing. And I, you know, how could I really do this? And yet I find I can't overcome it. So I guess, you know, I'm going to have to marry you even though it's beneath my dignity. And at no point does he actually consider the possibility that she will reject him. I mean, there's all of this presumption based on his power and his masculinity. And Elizabeth says something to the effect of, I would never marry you. You've not behaved in a gentlemanlike manner. Um, and she lists the various things he's done that, that have appalled her. But the thing that really um, stops Darcy short is the idea that he hasn't behaved in a gentlemanlike manner. Darcy has assumed that he's a gentleman based on birth. He was born a gentleman. Therefore, he is a gentleman. And Elizabeth is actually doing something political here. She is redefining the nature of gentlemanliness. She's suggesting it's not simply a product of birth. You don't just get to be a gentleman because you were born into that position. You have to have the qualities of gentlemen. You have to behave like a gentleman. And in fact, someone not born into a gentlemanly position could be a better gentleman than you are. And her uncle, Mr. Gardner, is often kind of a good example of that. And at the end of the novel, what happens is that Darcy says to Elizabeth, after he proposes, by you, I was properly humbled. I came to you without a doubt of my reception. That's in the first proposal. You showed me how insufficient were all my pretensions to please a woman worthy of being pleased. Darcy recognizes that it is character, that it is behavior, that it is humility that actually defines a true gentleman. And that Elizabeth's worth, though not socioeconomically as high as his, is morally 
superior and that he has to change his personality. He has to change his sense himself. He has to actually be humble, lower himself to be worthy of the distinction, the high distinction of being a gentleman. Because he could have easily said, uh, this person who doesn't have as much money as me, you know, it doesn't have the social status as me. I can dismiss what she's saying. She's saying, I'm not a gentleman. I know I am. But he's taking her word as something that matters. And so let's talk a little bit about this power and inequality. How do we translate that now? How do you explain that to your students to translate that this was a time when a, a, a man could easily, with a little bit of money, could easily overpower a woman and easily... Well, I, I encourage you know I mean? my students not to see it just in terms of gender. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very, you know, tempting to kind of talk about Austin just in terms of gender and relationships between men and women. But I think that's precisely the kind of thing that diminishes the complexity of her novels and makes it them in some ways seem like chiclet or like something that only, you know, female students should be interested in because male students expect to be dissed, right? I encourage students, for instance, to see the tension between Elizabeth and Darcy as characteristic of you know, political questions of the moment. Um, Darcy represents the idea that a person is born into uh, status and wealth and that that actually is accompanied by a certain kind of superiority of character, that it is birth that determines individual worth. Um, or money. Well, it's the money that accompanies birth, right? It's the wealth and status that you're born into. Well, I mean today, in today's times, the idea right. that or money... Though, or, or we could say not just money, but um, advantages, mm-hmm. right? Like who gets to go to college without scholarship, right? That that certain kinds of... You know, that it, it would be like saying that if you're born into a privileged household, you are on some levels morally superior, Right to someone who's not. And Elizabeth represents the power of individualism. Elizabeth is someone who says, that is not what impresses me about somebody. What impresses me about somebody is how that person behaves. Their character. That person's character and that person's merit. And the tension between Elizabeth and Darcy is a tension that's very ripe that moment because the big debate, this is, you know, uh, Pride and Prejudice is, is published in the early 19th century. This is after the French Revolution. This is after the American Revolution. The, the, the big debate is to what extent is individual value determined by privilege and to what extent is it determined by character? And Elizabeth, in some ways, represents the budding individual, the person who claims independent rights. There's a great scene that she has with Lady Catherine de Bourgh at the end of the novel where she tells Elizabeth that she can't marry Darcy because she is inferior socioeconomically. Lady Catherine tells Elizabeth that her presence at Pemberley will pollute it. Um, Just as an aside, I think this is something we can talk about in terms of today, you know, kind of the idea that certain people should not go in certain spaces, that certain people are toxic or pollutant or dangerous, right? There are all kinds of contemporary applications of that logic, and that logic pervades some of the most wicked characters in Austen's novels, characters who think other characters don't deserve to be in certain spaces, don't deserve certain kinds of advantages, need to be kicked out in all kinds of ways, simply Mm -hmm. because they are not what we might say today, real Americans 
or were the Americans in Lady Catherine de Bourgh's uh, estimation Elizabeth is not worthy of being mistress of Pemberley because of where she comes from she would be pollution and Elizabeth tells her after Lady Catherine tries to make Elizabeth promise not to marry Mr. Darcy Elizabeth tells her you know I don't have to promise you anything I don't care what your status or advantage is and she says famously that she's determined only, quote, to act in that manner which will, in my own opinion, constitute my happiness without reference to you or to any person so wholly unconnected to me. That declaration is a declaration of individual rights. Which that is word. totally different. Uh, and we have to understand the time period here because what was supposed to technically happen was I, of, of, of higher status, tell you something and you do it. And here you have someone who is defying the status quo. Well, she's defining the status quo. She's not exactly defying the status quo because the status quo is changing. She is articulating a certain set of values that are gaining predominance against an older set of values that someone like Lady Catherine de Bourgh represents. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Robin. It was a pleasure. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Elizabeth Greenfield. I'd also like to thank my producer, Marina Koff. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, and catch up on shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.